Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. The Royal Tenenbaums is the movie we watched this week. Levi, tell us about the Royal Tenenbaums. An estranged family of former child prodigies reunites when their father announces he is terminally ill. Thanks, JJ from IMDb. Eric, the Royal Tenenbaums, pretty good movie. <laughs> great, great, great review. <laughs> Um, keep it we've got an hour and you know in yeah. terms of how my notes look for most shows this one i've it looks like you, there should be an overhead shot for wes anderson behind the camera tracing the weird little arrows i have between uh-huh. all my notes uh, Ooh. just so much going on in this movie mm. i think we've come out of rushmore and at this point wes anderson especially in 2001 white hot and yeah, full form here. I mean, I remember when this movie came out, it was a big deal. And I still think that this is like Wes Anderson's definitive movie. In the that, in the same way that Pulp Fiction is Quentin Tarantino's definitive movie, uh, or Pan's Labyrinth is Guillermo del Toro's definitive movie, I feel like this movie is Wes Anderson's definitive movie. Absolutely. I it's all of his effects, his style. I think mm-hmm. he finally he honed in. Uh, the story begins to, the the rhythm of the story begins to carry what I think the weight that the actors previously did for Rushmore and Balarock at both. I think a lot of that was that there's a lot of work being done by the actors uh, in this movie. I think he has a phenomenal cast, and that with the lessons that he and did Owen Wilson help write this? Yes, the lessons that were learned previously they really start they come together and it sings i agree that this is absolutely his definitive movie and there were as a point towards the end when i started trying to sort of pre-gauge where i come down on the wes anderson filmography and i think even with as good as grand budapest is i think royal tenenbaums will still be at the top when we get done i mean it's hard to beat it it's so good and i know a lot of people are probably saying what about life aquatic i mean life aquatic is also very awesome and i'm really happy we get to watch it next week it's next week right yes um we call that a teaser in the biz <laughs> uh so I'm, I'm super excited to watch that movie but i really feel like this film has it's it's a little just a little bit more grounded i mean life aquatic has a giant sea monster at the end of it mm-hmm. um this movie has a dog dying you know it's just a little <laughs> bit more grounded and on this watch it hit me emotionally in a way that it never hit me emotionally before um i think that the the two kind of um unrequited love stories in this movie which the first one being the the unrequited love between royal and his children and mm-hmm. the second one being the unrequited love be- between Margot and Richie. Yeah. Uh, those really kind of stood out to me in a way that they didn't stand out to me um, in previous watches of this movie. I think that this movie is one that betters with age in terms of maturity. Like, as you become more mature, this movie becomes more poignant. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it's still super Wes Anderson-y, 
Um, but I feel like I've gotten some insights into Wes Anderson that I didn't have uh, before uh, I watched this movie on this rewatch. So I, I, I really appreciated this viewing, and I think that this film is actually better than I even remember it being. So, uh, yeah, for, for I, what it's worth. I agree. And I'm trying to think back to which... We talked about this on a previous episode of Direct. There are some mm-hmm. movies that... As you get older, you adva- <laughs> there's a different part of the movie yeah. that you're watching for. Fight Club. Fight, Fight Club. Club's a great example. Yes, exactly. You're getting... When you watch Fight Club when you're 16, you're like, oh, yeah, dude! <laughs> and then when you watch it when you're 30, and you're like, oh, man. <laughs> oh. Exactly. <laughs> it's, just, it's a completely different movie, depending on your maturity level. Well, and I remember watching this when I was younger and seeing the dysfunction of the family and that Mm -hmm. really stood out and now with age and with a child (laughs) as as wrong as royal is on so many levels yeah the the notion of mortality and the desire to do right by your family Mm -hmm. uh, is overpowering it's and it's really easy to hit that string with somebody who at that when we reach that age where we can emotionally relate when you start yeah. to feel like what is the legacy i'm leaving and legacy is a big word for you know something that it, you look at the the great marker for royal at the end and he mm-hmm. it's a great big load of horse shit uh, died tragically rescuing yeah. his family from the wreckage of a destroyed sinking battleship that's what we all dream of we want that grandiose thing to leave behind mm-hmm. but we don't get it it's not what we get and so you're trying to yeah. settle for the next best thing which is you know if you're lucky you get to save your grandkids if <laughs> and that's like if you're really lucky you could do something that heroic not that you want to be in that situation right but odds are if you don't run over a dog you did okay you came yeah, out ahead i think there's that i think the uh, less though i mean i wasn't really getting hit with the mortality thing but i was getting hit with the adult child thing mm-hmm. um i i feel like you know your parent it's really interesting when you stop becoming your parents children and start becoming your parents friends mm-hmm. and i feel like this movie kind of illustrates that like it shows what a fun you know, dad he was in terms of like having BB gun fights with his kids <laughs> um, and, you know, taking Richie out to the dog fights, which is pretty horrific when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but he's kind of this rip roaring adventure dad and yet he doesn't connect emotionally with his children um, on any level and obviously has a favorite and obviously uh, has some level of discomfort with having an adopted child and all this stuff, like just all this bullshit that gets covered up uh, with this playful um, kind of persona that he creates. And, and you see, he replicates that playful persona with his grandchildren. It's like the same exact thing that he's doing relating to his grandchildren. Yeah. But then there's also this idea that when they get older, you want to connect with them because you want to see the adults they become. And, and you can connect with them on an adult level. And all of these children are stunted in some way. Uh, and I think that, you know, Royal has a lot to do with that and a lot of blame to take with 
with all of these kids. Um, but trying to relate to them on an adult level is something that's interesting, and it's more interesting when you're an adult. So, well, that's you cannot the the reason mortality sticks out in my mind is because it, I, you can there comes a time when you become very aware that you're not getting moments a second time. You're you, Eric, your classic line mm-hmm. when we have usually birthday parties and drinking is involved <laughs> is, and it's every year you say, you only turn 21 once, you only turn uh-huh. 25 once, you only turn yeah. 30 once. It, and it's true. It really is <laughs> mildly prophetic. You know, as much as it's said to be bro and funny, it's true. It, and there's a well, philosophy it's a to back that. back to when I was 20, when, we, when Jesse turned 21 and we got super wasted and passed out in a church that's (laughs) that's what it comes from so it comes from a very like pure place Mm -hmm. but yeah it's a it's a callback you're right it carries a weight it carries a little bit of weight the older you get yeah so uh where's it going with that so royal you know is Mm -hmm. he's trying to make up for the lost time and he the problem is is that he just reverts to what he did before with and like you said he does it with his grandkids and that's mm-hmm. there it works but when your emotional needs are the the grandkids i think with their father are getting that portion that their father did not get he has covered the other half and what's missing is in this effort to grow up despite his his father uh, uh chaz has mm-hmm. sort of removed that portion the fun loving being silly being a little bit dangerous portion and rightfully so that's what makes yeah everybody has a reason to be the tragic flaw that they are and royal is just the big heaping blanket on top of everybody's tragedy whether it's being uh, adopted or losing their wife or mm-hmm. Margot's or um, Richie's sort of dealing with this incest issue and and yeah. even uh, Eli uh, Owen Wilson's character he j- he wanted to be a Tenenbaum and that's something he was never able to achieve right uh, and he yeah and he lived you know he lived in a one bedroom apartment with his grandma across the street from this mansion that all these kids were growing up in yeah um i i think that's really good but there's also the kind of the MacGuffin that gets the story going in this the reason why royal turns up is because he hears that uh angelica houston's character which uh, her name escapes me at the moment ethylene ethylene is is getting is is contemplating marriage Mm-hmm. And that is the thing, you know, his 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 uh his right hand man Pagoda hears that, goes to him, and that's the thing that gets the, the wheels in motion and gets Royal trying to get the band back together. Yeah, we get um, a little bit of that mis- yeah. we get that mischievous plot that is central to Wes Anderson's the motivation of most of his stories. Right, but I love how it starts off with a selfish motivation mm-hmm. and then turns into a, a, a real opportunity to connect with his children again. And he's able to... There's a, that big cathartic one-shot at the end of the movie where we go from the ambulance and the priest getting the ambulance to Royal buying the dog from the f- firefighters. And you, you kind of go through all of these little cathartic moments with the characters. They call it the catharsis one-shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's that moment at the end of the film that he actually gets 
he actually achieves his full emotional growth uh, when he lets go and when Evangeline, uh, or I'm sorry, <laughs> Evangeline Lily, yeah, uh, Angelica Houston's character gets you know gets married uh, and he's there at the wedding. You know, there's there's something that's interesting about that arc as well. You know, he get he didn't quite know that connecting with his kids was going to be so great, but there's that really sweet little line when he says, you know, the last six days have been the best six days of my life. And then there's a voiceover of Alec Baldwin saying, and in his heart, he knew it was true. You know, there's just Mm -hmm. something really beautiful about that, about connecting and family and, and all of that wonderful stuff. So this movie's really sweet. That's what I really give Wes Anderson credit for in all of his Mm -hmm. films. And I always when describing it to outsiders. I, I think his central theme is that, family isn't what's necessarily given to you it's who you choose and in life aquatic we're going to see a family that is sort of a, an amalgamation of friends mm-hmm. uh the idea of who is most important in family in darjeeling limited you know the brothers really learn to focus on each other because their parents are both pretty crummy and the Tenenbaums is, you know, they don't start a family, but at the end they have some form of cohesion because of yeah. the actions and the acceptance of one another. Uh, uh-huh. And that's what makes it, I think, one, discomforting for a lot of people because that's, everybody has family issues. That's what, I think that's why these movies can be so poetic is they're not getting at themes that are new they're getting at kind of those original stories the ones that you know about your own family and the weird relationships that you have everybody has crazy relatives at the very least yeah that's what i really came to appreciate from wes anderson in this movie is that it's something i never really realized before because we think of wes anderson as a very stylized director very stylish Mm -hmm. you know um but this movie made me realize that he's actually very simple storyteller Mm -hmm. and instead of embellishing which i think we usually uh we usually like to say that wes anderson embellishes his movies you know with with all of these stylistic you know uh accoutrement yeah a lot of i think he i think he actually is distilling things down to their simplest form you know in a lot of his movies people wear the same clothes in every scene uh, Royal in this movie basically has like his suit and he has his elevator operator <laughs> outfit Uniform. and he has a robe mm-hmm. and you know Ben Stiller wears the track suit and uh, Owen Wilson wears the cowboy hat and uh, Luke Wilson wears the sweatband you know all of these characters basically wear the same costume throughout the entire movie uh, and their costumes really do allow you to understand who they are immediately um, and associate, uh, you know, what's what they are as a character and what they represent as a character immediately. And then they allow you to be touchstones throughout the movie when you come back to these characters. And then it's like you can use those to have really poignant moments. I thought that the most poignant moment in this whole movie and the one that really opened my eyes and surprised me was the the scene where Luke Wilson's character, Richie, uh, attempts suicide. Like, mm-hmm. I was, like, watching that scene, and I was just like, damn it, Luke Wilson's a really fucking good actor. 
and he does such an amazing job in this scene. Yeah. Um, and it's him removing all of that familiar camouflage that he's been wearing throughout the movie. It's him stripping down, shaving his head and, uh, you know, taking off his shirt and all Mm. of that. So, uh, I really think that he, Wes Anderson is all about distilling things down to their simplest and most easy to understand form. And he use he's really big on theme and he's really big on, uh, on using style to tell a story. And it comes across in the dialogue as well. Like the dialogue is all very quippy. It's very Mm. short it's very to the point. Everybody kind of says exactly what they mean at the moment. Um, and so it really did open my eyes. I think that Wes Anderson is somebody who explores very simple themes in a very stylized way that makes them seem complex, but they're really, at the core of it, very distilled and and snappy. And that's what I like about him. It gives it that it feels like a kid's book. and. Mm-hmm. Which is yeah. cute because this whole thing is set inside of a book. We totally. see a lot of jacket covers for the books that were, mm-hmm. you know, they start by talking about the children being geniuses uh, and the books that kind of revolve around that. Uh, <laughs> I love how everybody's written a book in this. Yes, movie. every every, and now in the Amazon era, you can. They weren't that yeah. far off. Uh, well, I like that they're all hardbound books with jackets. Oh, well, that'll never go out. Well, that will probably go out of style at some point. Um, <laughs> go buy books, everybody, because <laughs> at some point you probably won't be able nah, to. It'll be like vinyl, dude. Like, it'll come back. I know. I've got. I've been moving books or a whole book collection around for a long time now, and I'm not getting rid of them. Too many moves. Um, the, the kid's book. Uh, you're right. Uh, he does. He simplifies these things down, and his... You're talking about the dialogue. There mm-hmm. are not a lot of moments that don't have uh, an interaction or a di- or a dialogue very clearly occurring. Wes uh-huh. Anderson, from what we've seen so far, usually somebody's talking, or it's a uh, it's the scenes like with Mordecai flying away. They're very uh, specific scenes trying to relate usually a, a metaphor of some sort right uh, he doesn't waste a lot of time or space Mm-mm. and even in the dialogue yeah. like you said like it's quick it's not only is it quippy it's largely to the point someone tells the yeah. truth or they lie uh and the the story moves on there's not yeah. a lot of hemming and hawing if there was a pause yeah, and, there's na- and there's narration to fill in the gap yeah oh absolutely yeah. and alec Baldwin does a great job narrating this at yeah. the start and the end, especially. And the end is so. I don't know what it is about the solemnity that he's able to bring in at a. It, you're right because that final scene, Alec Baldwin is specifically saying nobody spoke at the funeral, but mm-hmm. that is being conveyed to us in words because I don't think that. Wes Anderson would be content to have that scene be silent. I think he, yeah. as he needs, he wants to be clear about why there is a silence. Uh, well, it also matches the theme. We start with narration. You have to end with narration. Yeah. We're being told this story. It's not necessarily it, the, the storybook narration allows this thing to be as stylized as it is. Mm-hmm. Like one of my favorite things about the storybook narration is that you see the chapter headings. You could read the first sentence of the chapter. Yeah. 
and then it mirrors like what happens you know uh, yeah it's usually richie walks down the stairs yeah richie walks down the stairs with uh with the boar's head in his hands and then like that's the next (laughs) um so uh, you know I, i love how he uses that theme to do narration in a really interesting way i think that narration is great i love narration in movies but it can be horrible Mm-hmm. I mean, I you know how I met your mother was completely narrated. <laughs> so, like you don't, you know, I feel like narration done well is is really interesting. This chapter thing also really intrigues me because I know that it's very Wes Anderson, and he do- doesn't just do it in the Royal Tenenbaums. Mm-hmm. Um, he does this chapter thing. Um, I know he does it in uh, Grand Budapest, but uh, yeah. I want to keep an eye out for it. However, remember we watched a director who was doing chapters big time. Yeah, and that's Quentin Tarantino. Cutie. Like, yeah, uh, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, um, uh, uh, Kill Bill has chapters. I'm pretty sure. Yep. Um, and so the chapter motif is something that's really established in the Tarantino verse, and I'm wondering if maybe this is just a hint of of inspiration or homage to that because Wes Anderson definitely came out of the post Tarantino world as a director. Well, and abs- he loves to reference stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. I recommend everybody watch, uh, what was it called? The Wes Anderson collections on Vimeo. Um, they're usually short. Mm-hmm. They're like five, 10 minutes by Matt Zoller sites. And he just, he does a quick cover of most of the movies and he catches really deep references that, you know, despite the fact that, we've seen a lot of movies mm-hmm. you know i don't realize that there's a a mild reference to the french connection because it's gene hackman in <laughs> right, a in a, a one point perspective driving a go-kart um yeah. there's some references to midnight cowboy when gene hackman shouts out the window as uh, uh owen wilson's climbing out and he's like hey i know you asshole that's literally line for line from the witness with uh harrison ford so Hmm. i wouldn't put it past him in the least to be like i love chapters and i love quentin tarantino that's a great idea done in my movie but he also does it in a completely different way than tarantino does well you know it's just it's just it's just it's in there yeah you know well and it's intentional because he has set up this book format to begin with so Mm -hmm. he quentin tarantino uses it because you know, it's, he's it's like jazz with him. He's doing whatever he whatever comes to mind. Sometimes it feels like yeah. Wes Anderson set up a structure and then is kind of working inside of it. This is so interesting to me because I I want to I'm thinking about the definitive movie conversation that we had at the beginning of this podcast mm-hmm. about 15 minutes ago, <laughs> and I'm thinking like. It's interesting to me that the director's definitive movie tends to fall in like their first two to three movies. And I'm trying to think for Fincher, I think that Seven would probably be his definitive movie. And if not, then Fight Club definitely is. Yeah, I'd go with, I'd be inclined to go Seven. Yeah, I mean, Seven, I think from a film perspective, Seven is probably his definitive movie. And from a fan perspective fight club maybe is but but you know seven i believe was his second movie mm-hmm. um after alien three yeah like, <laughs> um and then tarantino you know pulp fiction was his second movie 
and this is Wes Anderson's third movie. I just think it's interesting with these kind of directors, director, directors, you know, these filmmaker perspective people. Um, it's interesting to me that that they got to kind of hit their stride in the first three movies. Yeah, so somebody like Guillermo del Toro, I would definitely say Pan's Lambert is his definitive movie. That's like his sixth movie. Yeah. So I don't know. It's just it's just an interesting little thought experiment. Like think of a prolific director. Think of what you think their definitive movie is and see where it falls in their filmmaking canon. Because I feel like the other thing about this movie that's very interesting. It's it, this thing sets in stone the Wes Anderson style. You know, it's 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 hinted at a bit in Rushmore, but Rushmore is definitely a little bit more freeform mm-hmm. than this one in terms of style. Bottle Rocket is kind of its own thing. Yep. There's there's hints, there's tidbits of, of Anderson style. But once he makes the ten, Royal Tenenbaums, the rest of his films have this style to them. Well, uh, so. I wonder if there's... So, it, I really like that we've come from a series of directors who have had that, that kind of rhythm. Uh, Guillermo yeah. del Toro being the exception. But I think if you look at the cast of directors we've done thus far, Guillermo del Toro, in terms of box office success and critical mm-hmm. acclaim is probably off to the side comparing to Tarantino, uh, yeah, uh, Edgar Wright, and uh, Fincher. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's something to be said for I a lot of these things where they really hit their stride, uh, whether it's um, uh, Pulp Fiction or, in mm-hmm. this instance, uh, Royal Tenenbaums, that... When they hit their stride, now they have they're trying to keep that a little bit. They try to keep it alive. Totally. I mean, look at Edgar Wright. He basically hit a stride with Shaun of the Dead. Yeah, he got it. He's been doing Shaun of the Dead ever since. Right. Yeah. I mean, he did it. Yeah, he did it on the first try. But you're right. You get kind of beholden to his style, which is really interesting because one of the big things there's a big drought right now. I think in filmmaking in that. It's so hard to like go out, go to the movies and see a big time movie that has a filmmaker's perspective to it. You look at like the top ten gross, highest grossing movies this year, and you know, I mean, you could, yeah, the Russo brothers directed, not the Russo brothers, they did <laughs> Stranger Things. I get it, the <laughs> brothers are uh, the guys who did Captain America: Civil War. Oh, I, the name's not coming to mind, but I know who you're talking but, about. Yeah, exactly. Like. The, uh, Captain America Civil War is the highest grossing movie of the year. Um, the, yeah, the Russo brothers. They are the Russo oh. brothers. Who did Stranger Things? That wasn't I'm getting thing? this mixed up. I don't know, but I like that you brought TV into this because while you're yeah. looking that for that, um, I think that maybe that has transitioned some to TV between HBO mm. and Netflix. Yeah. These opportunities for experimentation. Now it's not trying to convince a big studio to give you a shot you can go through these tv options and even edgar yeah. wright we say he hits in one but he had a super long series with uh, whatever right. that tv show was that he did it wasn't was super long it was i think it was 12 episodes i think he did two series of that mm-hmm. spaced space what it's called um yeah they're the duffer brothers by the way they did stranger things but but what i'm trying to get at here is that this kind of uh i mean i was watching red letter media's um retrospective of 2016 films and they basically Mm -hmm. ran through all the movies that they watched this year but they didn't actually do like an hour-long discussion about and uh one of them 
like really had a good perspective in that it's interesting to watch movies. He was referencing um, Swiss Army Man, yeah. the, the movie with Paul Dano mm-hmm. and, and Daniel Radcliffe, where Daniel Radcliffe plays a farting corpse. Yeah. And, you know, he's like, you know, some people love this movie. Some people hated this movie. But the thing about this movie is that it has a perspective. It has an actual you feel like a filmmaker made this movie. And I feel like that's becoming more and more rare as time goes on. Um, and that's why I think, you know, when the hateful eight comes out, when Wes Anderson, when the grand Budapest hotel comes out, even now, even with Nolan, I feel like Nolan has, has carved out his space there. You go to a movie because it's a Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah. Um, but those types of directors, I feel like there was a lot more of those directors like in the early two thousands and the nineties than there are now. Cause there's so much, I feel like the studios find these directors, um, whether it's uh, Gareth, it's Gareth Edwards, um, who's doing the the new Star Wars movie, or it's uh, you know the guy who directed Jurassic World. Oh they, yeah, they like find these guys who make like one small movie, and then they're like, yeah, Colin Trevorrow who made Jurassic World, uh, and then they throw them into these giant you know blockbuster movies. Where you know that like the stunt coordinators running all the stunts, the director of photographers running all the director of photography, the VFX guys running all the VFX stuff. Like as a director, they're there to basically usher the studio's will, <laughs> and because they don't have a track record, the studio could do whatever they want with them. It's a, it's a sad thing. Like they're taking all of these interesting young filmmakers and they're turning them into studio, um, they're turning them into studio heads. You know, yeah. and it, 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 it sometimes it works. Sometimes it's disastrous. It will, like with the Fantastic Four. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, you're you're not wrong. I think it is a concern, and that's what with Alien Three. I think we saw the worst case scenario, and maybe that was yeah. to Fincher's benefit because that's what yeah. the studio said. Oh, here's <laughs> you know, use that's our right. people, use these people yeah. who know what they're doing. But they didn't fit his vision, and mm-hmm. because of his reality, uh Somehow he still got angry and just couldn't take it. And so he pushed through it and found an opportunity where he was not beholden to that. And I, I, you know, I read a really good article yeah. once about HBO, how they put out things like vinyl uh, shows that aren't critically successful, mm-hmm. um, but might be good shows. Right. They don't, they don't need everything to be a success. Some of it's just experimentation. Some of it's just opportunity to give these guys a shot and yeah so i think that's the new grounds for experimentation and the danger is is that you have one success there and then you get yeah. pulled up to a studio and the in the compromise that follows uh yeah you kind you have enough financial success that you're fine and the where you'll get the david finchers is it'll be rare because you'll you'll have to find people who their vision is so strong. Their desire to achieve yeah. their vision is going to have to overcome financial success. Now you need to find well, somebody who's not but, satisfied. But with the that. issue is they're tying it. They're tying it to the. Stu- I mean, once you're in the studio system, right now they're not making like thirty million dollar thrillers anymore. Mm-hmm. Every movie has so much writing on it that it's it's weird because and I know this is a huge detour, but it's it, it's an interesting conversation. Um, in regards to Wes Anderson, because he's been able to break through this. He, I think he was able to slide under the radar 
a little bit. I think it would have been interesting if he would have made Rushmore and then Disney would have tapped him to direct Doctor Strange 2. You know, <laughs> it's it's kind of weird. Like you look at there's there's a, there's the there's a classic examples. Colin Trevorrow directed a movie called Safety Not Guaranteed. Did you see this movie? Uh yes, I did. Yeah, Safety Not Guaranteed. Small movie. Mhm. Mar- starring Mark Duplass and Ar- Aubrey Plaza, I believe. Yeah, it was it was good. Really I fun. really enjoyed it. Yeah, really fun, quirky little movie. He makes this movie. Next movie's Jurassic World. <laughs> okay? Like, he, yes, he gets to direct Jurassic World, but where does his voice go as a filmmaker mm-hmm. doing that? Gareth Edwards. Uh, have you seen Monsters? Yes. Oh, that's yeah. the guy that's doing, he's doing the next Star Wars. But he did Monsters recently. Yeah, so he did Monsters, which, which I saw on, I think it was on Netflix. A long time ago. Uh, Long time ago, yeah, it was released in 2010. Then comes out, then is tapped to do Godzilla after Monsters and directs the new Godzilla movie. Yeah. Now he's directed Rogue One, a Star Wars movie, and it's interesting because I'm like, maybe, maybe he's, maybe he's doing what he wants. Uh, but I, this is an interesting thing. Maybe we'll go back to and watch the Gareth Edwards rise. But then you have you have the Josh Trank scenario. Josh Trank directed Chronicle, yeah, oh, which is a great little film. I like Chronicle. It's easily movie. my yeah, it's easily my favorite Max Landis written movie. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just something really fun about it and cool, and it's an awesome little take on superheroes. Plus, the final battle takes place on the Space Needle, so I love that. that- but then he gets tapped to do uh, Fantastic Four. And it's this disastrous story, and his career tanks, and it's so sad to see. Um, what happened to this small indie filmmaker? So these small indie filmmakers, I feel like Wes Anderson, uh, or probably not Quentin Tarantino. I think he <laughs> might be. You know, even somebody like um, Edgar Wright had a brush with this yeah. when he was tapped to direct Ant Man and he backed mm-hmm. out. Um, so it's just interesting to me because I, I worry that we're losing our filmmakers to the studio system, and. Maybe there'll have to be like a big studio crash in order to to resurrect the the film the filmmaker with voice. But you know, I, I think that Anderson was in, is in a very good time here uh, to create his his style, and now it's a signature style. And now he's one of the few directors you go to his movies because he directed it. Those movies, those directors, I feel like are getting few and far between. Yeah, Wes Anderson. This is the gentrification of film, essentially, and Wes Anderson yeah. was. In a lot of ways, the first, he was the the nasty warehouse that an artist moved in, <laughs> turned it into this amazing thing, and every developer in town just built out around it. And mm-hmm. Wes Anderson's now successful and able to reside in that neighborhood, but any artist that was around him was forced out as you know development <laughs> occurs around. And, yeah. and it's unfortunate. I think the reality is what happen i think what will happen in films the same thing that happens in real life everybody finds a different part of town there's always a part of town mm-hmm. that is really dangerous and usually much cheaper to live and <laughs> and forward thinkers will go after that because they need they gravitate to those spaces so we will right. not have as many good artists um we'll lose people along the way please don't let it be gareth Edwards. please let rogue one be good um <laughs> i hear it's good i'm i'm hopeful but early buzz is good but there i i like to think that wes anderson even 
if a studio had approached him early on, would be able to maintain his style. I think that... I don't know, man. I don't think that any studio is going to look at his movies and be like, yeah, this is how we're going to tell the next Green Lantern movie. <laughs> That's... This is a great perspective on Green Lantern. <laughs> Maybe, you know what? Maybe it could have saved Green Lantern. I don't doubt it. I'm not doubting I it. I would love to see Ryan Reynolds under Wes Anderson's oh, God. guidance. <laughs> Pure morbid curiosity. What do you... We, yeah. we have such a stellar cast uh, in yeah. this movie, and a, there's a lot of small repeats, which I find really humorous. Mm -hmm. Did you know that Pagoda, uh, Kumar Palana... Um, mm -hmm. His son is actually has been in all three films thus far and doesn't show up in any others. Oh, uh, really? But the doctor in this movie, who was a teacher in Rushmore, and he was the he was one of the employees of oh, the bookstore. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He looked really familiar, and so I was looking up totally. his name, and then I was looking up other repeat characters, and I noticed that him and Kumar had the same last name. So, huh, so he's Kubar's son. That's yeah, really and this is he does these three movies. He makes a short appearance in a movie I've never heard of in 2006, and that's the extent of his acting career. What was that movie? I think it was Car Babes. Ooh, Car Babes, classic. Yeah, I'm not um, sure what that is about, but uh... <laughs> well, I mean, you could talk about actors, but you can also talk about themes. I mean, that's the thing about Wes Anderson. I'm also noticing during this run is that he's kind of one note. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm saying Wes Anderson's one note. <laughs> it's um, a simple note. That's it. It's a simple it's note, a simple, and he approaches but, it from different angles. But so many things here. I mean, we open up with somebody checking out the book from the library. Remember, a library book was central to the plot in Rushmore. Mm -hmm. uh, then we go right to the introductions of the children, and one of them is a genius playwright as a child, which was exactly the same thing that, uh, Mac, that Max was in Rushmore. His name was Max, right, in Rushmore? Yes. Um, also, then we go to Richie. Richie's on an ocean liner uh, that explores the ocean. Not only does that play forward into Life Aquatic, it also plays backward into the Jacques Cousteau library book, which we talked about earlier mm -hmm. when we were referencing the library book. Uh, you know, there's there's just a lot. There's the go-karts, uh, you know, them racing the go-karts through the streets. There's also the go-karts in Rushmore. There's escaping through the window when Margot escapes. Uh, she escapes using Tide together sheets that she uses to get out of the window mm -hmm. that's the exact same thing that they do in bottle rocket the opening scene in bottle rocket so there's a lot of like recurring stuff um smoking dude smoking is like huge in wes anderson's early movies i want to see if that carries <laughs> yeah through. i am especially smoking in inappropriate places like school grounds and hospitals yep. gotta smoke in the hospital <laughs> yeah but I do like that they put a little no smoking sign before behind them in the back. That's it slowly like, creeping. Okay. And then I, I, now I'm trying to remember if there is smoking in Grand Budapest. Um, it seems fitting for it given the time period of that. Yeah, but there's a lot of smoking in, like a lot of characters smoke in Rushmore. You just don't, it's interesting because you just don't see characters smoke in movies anymore. And I know there's like a big thing. Like now it can actually get a, uh, a an adult rating because there's tobacco use in it. Well, that's um, I think that's the intent but behind it's interesting. it too. I, yeah. He's trying to. He uses it as a because as a kid, I think a lot mm -hmm. of these movies are through the lens of a child trying to figure out what the adult life is like. Uh, mm -hmm. Smoking is one of those things that oh, adults smoke. I want to smoke because I want to be right. cool like the adults I see in movies. Right. Yeah. 
and and you know it's it's a hallmark of Wes Anderson's films is children acting like adults and adults acting like children. Mm-hmm. And one of the hallmark ways that a child acts like an adult is if they're smoking. Like, there's nothing more disgusting than a 12-year-old smoking cigarettes. It's like, come on, kid. Yeah, really rough. I know that your lungs can handle it because they're fresh. They're fresh, beautiful (laughs) lungs. And if we were in a Donner Party situation and you had died of frostbite, I'd go for the lungs first. I'm sure that they're delicious. (laughs) But... (laughs) (laughs) But don't smoke, is what I'm saying. I... Another theme uh, <laughs> that we've had several times now, uh, uh-huh. and Max put it into into words in Rushmore's "Sick Transit Gloria." Glory fades. This mm-hmm. whole movie is about a family that had glory at one point, and that is gone. Right. And what are you left with? And Max repeated it so many times, and I think mm-hmm. in some ways Bottle Rocket sort of touched on it, but really. Uh, Dinigan, Deegan, uh, yeah. Owen Wilson never he never had it. He wanted it, um, and he's like already on the the downturn. And I think we'll continue to get it as we move forward. This idea that we're trying to achieve some previous glory that was probably not great, anyways. Yeah, exactly. It's it's an interesting. His name's Dignan. Dignan, by the way. thank you. Um, but it, you're right. It, it's like it's the, it's the the ruse of nostalgia mm-hmm. that and and it's so perfectly illustrated by Wes Anderson because his movies are so timeless that in the end of this movie when you see that Royal Tenenbaum dies in 2001 it's almost jarring because his movies are so timeless and they live in this world of like the n- mid 1970s i feel like that's the aesthetic that is portrayed mm-hmm. um and all of the kind of interesting and beautiful things about those these bygone eras that are actually kind of grotesque and weird i mean bill murray's whole wardrobe in this show it real dead above is, is laughable like if you saw somebody wearing this you'd be like what are you wearing dude he's wearing like bell bottoms and all this stuff um he's trapped in an era but but you're right it's the ruse of nostalgia and i think that this totally plays into this th- a theme that that Wes Anderson leans on a lot that I don't think we've talked about is this idea that glory fades and you'd like to look back on the past with rose colored glasses in this same way. Wes Anderson looks back on the past in rose colored glasses and creates these beautiful, intricate, detailed, stylized scenes using basically full on nostalgia. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if anybody stays at the YMCA anymore. (laughs) Do, you, do people actually stay at the YMCA? I don't, I don't know. I didn't know that was a thing until a few years ago. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it was big in, like, the 70s, yeah. right? Um, like, you know, you roll into town, you go to the YMCA. That's where you stay. Uh, it's fun to stay at the YMCA. <laughs> um, you can get yourself clean. You can have a good oh meal. Goodness. So you can do the whole song? or <laughs> You can do whatever you feel, okay? Uh it's fun to stay. No, okay. Uh, so that, that that's really interesting. I like that nostalgia factor. Another thing that Wes Anderson does in these movies that is a s- s- complete recurring theme over and over and over again is dealing with the death of a loved one. Someone's trying to fill the void in their mm-hmm. lives that's been left by the death of a loved one. In, in Rushmore, it was Max. In this movie, it's Ben Stiller's character, Chaz. Uh... 
and it, that theme will permeate as we go throughout the movie. So that filling the hole left by a loved one, I think, is is something that I will definitely want to keep keep an eye out well, for in the in this Wes Anderson run. It's a it's a powerful theme. I, a lot of great stories are based around the either the motivation that comes with the death of a loved one or the attempt mm-hmm. to prevent the death of a loved one. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a classic story. And it's, I think there's even nostalgic for that um, in yeah. some ways. One thing I want, it's simple, right? It's, it's easy to root for a widow yes. or a widow yeah. or a child whose parent has died. You know that you give those you give people uh, a little more room to breathe when they face tragedy like that. So if you give a backstory like that to a character, you're immediately going to have sympathy for them. Well, and we even see Royal actively apply that logic. He mm-hmm. invents a tra- an oncoming tragedy to generate this, <laughs> and the loss at the end is is real, but it's kind of right. humorous because he he preempted it. Um, and it worked. It helped him to yeah. reach a kind of closure with his family unknowingly. Yeah, I think that uh, I think you're totally right. I, I I love that scene between Gene Hackman and Angelica Houston w- when he tells her that he's dying, and he's like, "No, I'm not dying." And then she starts smacking him. He's like, "No, I am dying. I'm dying." <laughs> <laughs> like, this crazy thing, but then you know this this death of a loved one thing plays out a lot. Obviously, it plays out at the end of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Gene Hackman is, mourns the death of his mother, but not in a very um, not in a very sincere way. But he does go to her grave, yeah, uh, and you know places flowers at her grave. You have Danny Glover's character Henry. His wife died of stomach cancer. That's how he knows that Gene Hackman's yeah. royal is fake. Rough way to find um, out that somebody's wife had stomach cancer is when you get caught yeah. pretending to. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, that, that that theme plays out a lot, that, that kind of death of a loved one theme. So the interesting thing about that moving forward is, Wes, are you going to lean on that a little too much maybe going forward? Yeah, maybe one too many I, beautifully tragic deaths i think that in i think that in life aquatic steve zisu's partner got killed yes, it's, by the it's a revenge fish. story <laughs> this yeah, is the ahab tale this is wes anderson's quentin tarantino movie it's a revenge story <laughs> starring bill murray yeah um but I, I think that that's something to keep an eye out for i i really like the performances in this movie a lot they're all uh, grand. Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman, dude. What? Where's Gene Hackman been? Uh, like, let's go to IMDb and find out. <laughs> well, I mean, Gene Hackman. He's uh, not dead, is he? He's not dead. His last movie was in 2004, though. Welcome to Mooseport. Ooh, that that's kind of akin to... Um. You know, I yeah. he's he's eighty six years old. Well, you know what? At some point, you do get to retire. You don't have to work until you're playing Dumbledore. Yeah, just like Sean Connery, man. Sean Connery. Yeah. Although Sean Connery should be playing Dumbledore, Dumbledore. <laughs> I think we can all agree that would be awesome. Um, yeah, I Gene Hackman is all. He's one of those actors that, as a kid, you recognize him in a yeah. lot of things, but you don't know 
why and then as you get older you get to watch things um like why can't the french connection uh you know fabulous movie watching him shake down the bad guys and uh oh man gene hackman in the 80s was a fucking badass dude i love gene hackman in the 80s and the 90s doing so much like awesome stuff um you know he's a coach in hoosiers right uh, going all the way up to this the stupid Enemy of the State movie with Will Smith, he's great. Yeah, he plays crazy really um, well. He plays crazy. He plays uh, uh, what's the, there's like a movie with him and Denzel Washington where he's like a submarine captain. Oh, uh, I'm scrolling through here. I'm like, I know that I've seen that movie. Um, was that un- yeah under fire? Under fire. I nope, think that's, that's it. not it. Yeah. That's no. Why am I looking at Nick Nolte? Um, what are you doing? Where are you? It's Crimson Tide. Oh, Crimson, Crimson Tide. Tide. Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, Gene Hackman is a fucking badass, and I just think it's great that he. I think this is kind of a beautiful little swan song for him in some ways. Well, because it is. Uh, this was his fourth to the last movie. Mm-hmm. He did Real Tenenbaums, Behind Enemy Lines, The Runaway Jury, which is John Grisham novel and then he did welcome to mooseport and that was it for gene hackman he's still alive he confirmed in 2011 he said that he might come out of retirement to do one more film if he could do it in his own house without them disturbing anything and just one or two people. i feel like that's a challenge to wes anderson specifically i think wes anderson could totally do it <laughs> he could do an h&m commercial in gene hackman's house <laughs> and it would be beautiful I mean, wes anderson is he's been able to i mean he's got bill murray like on call. Yeah, speed dial. And Bill Murray is one of the most aloof actors in Hollywood. <laughs> and he's got Wes Anderson like Wes Anderson has his ear for it absolutely anything. And I love Bill Murray in this movie too. Like Bill Murray in the Royal Tenenbaums plays such a kind of pathetic character mm-hmm. and it's so not Bill Murray. I mean, this is not the Ghostbusters stripes uh Bill Murray. This is like a very pensive, contemplative um, you know, really getting taken advantage of. Yeah, he's not <laughs> doing his normal. Usually, he kind of will flow through a movie with kind yeah. of one-liners, and he he can do melancholy, but he usually does it in a in a silly fashion. Uh, right, and in this one, you almost don't like him. He's like you're, he's a bummer. Like you could see, you could see that him and Margot are not made yep. for each other. And that this is, you know, it's there's already something weird about it because of the big age difference between the two of them. And you could see that this was this had to have been some sort of kind of vanity thing for him. Mm-hmm. And for her, it was one of her many flings. Yeah. Like, they're definitely not on the same page about this thing. Uh, and he plays it so well. Like, even the shift between Bill Murray and Rushmore and Bill Murray and the Royal Tenenbaums is a huge shift. I mean, Bill Murray and Rushmore is still Bill Murray. I mean, he's still doing kind of the... The crazy zany stuff, and at this one he's so reserved. Um, so I love watching him change throughout these movies and really p- pick up different roles. That's why I'm so excited to go in the Life Aquatic with him um, because I feel like Life Aquatic is still him and it's him. It's kind of a, a cross between the two of these. yeah. It's zany stoic. <laughs> it's zany. That's a new add it to his IMDb page. Um, yeah. <laughs> I yeah, Bill Murray in this and. The way that he can still, he still lands jokes. He, but to mm-hmm. be able to do it with such a serious face is 
just fantastic. Like when he's sitting there, Dude, funny. The mo- we get the montage of uh, Margot, and after yeah. all of the. <laughs> Janie is a punk music and all of these flashes to her making out with people for him to just be like, I didn't know she smoked. <laughs> yeah. The most basic things about her. Although it'd be hard to, to go to not know that she's, <laughs> I mean, you can't just turn on a fan spritz, a couple of sprays of uh, perfume and the tobacco just disappears. Into but the it's air. a, it's a movie uh, full of people who deny the basic truth of their reality. And we haven't even touched on the fact that this is all kind of set off by the, the divorce, not divorce between Ethelene and, and Royal. And maybe it's having not gone through that experience. I wonder what, how this, the facet that you see this movie through, if you did struggle with that Mm -hmm. as a kid, I wonder, is it cathartic? Is it too close to home? Uh, because these kids internalize so much of the divorce, um, yeah. Whether it's separate themselves or put themselves in their work, uh, just mm-hmm. I, I, that's the one thing that I feel that I struggle to bring to this discussion about it <laughs> is that's the part of the movie I can't touch, and it's un, it's unfortunate. Yeah. Well, it's interesting though. Like we'll go back to the very the way that Wes Anderson distills the simple things mm-hmm. in movies. There's the scene where uh where Royal is explaining to the children that he's moving mm-hmm. out. And they just say all of the things that run through a kid's head. Is it our fault? Do you still love us? Like these are things that could be like on a subtextual level. They no, they just say them. They just say them mm-hmm. outright. Um this is the way that they just keep the story going forward. It's a very kind of building block way to build a script and to develop a film, but it's so it works so well because it's like a modern day fable. This is not necessarily rooted in realism. This is uh some kind of you know Edwardian fable that's happening right before our eyes. It's interesting. I want to go back though to Bill Murray because he has like the funniest scene of this movie in my opinion is when he's talking about the syndrome that he's researching uh-huh. in this kid. And he's like, you know, he's he's got severe dyslexia, he's colorblind, but he has an acute sense of hearing. And then, like, from all the way across the apartment, the kid goes, I'm colorblind? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, like, such great subtle humor that's really funny. Um, and this is the type of stuff that I like from Wes Anderson. I like it when it's subtextual and it's clever. And I I like Wes Anderson to be a little clever because I feel like he is a little cut and dry most of the time. Well, and I I want to talk specifically for a moment about the scene where mm-hmm. Luke Wilson commits suicide because yep I think it's one of the I think it may be the most serious scene we see out of Wes Anderson. Uh, yeah, and I wonder if he's afraid to return to that level of seriousness because of. Mm the reaction i think it really evokes a gut reaction from a lot of people uh you know that like you were saying where richie removes himself cutting his hair removing his band removing his eyeglasses uh he uses that single point wes anderson uses a lot of the tools that is that he really enjoys the lighting the color the whole Mm -hmm. scene the music that accompanies it the overhead shot um, and not even showing the wound, but just showing the blood running over the hands 
before moving yeah. away. Uh, just that scene, I think, is for me. I'm curious to see when we get to the end. Is that the most iconic scene for me, despite the lack of humor? Yeah, in it. maybe. No, it's it's a beautiful scene, and then there's that thing where he says, uh, you know, where he says, "I'm going to kill myself tomorrow." Then he gets a flashback to him wearing his clothes, and then he just does it. It's it's so it's such an interesting film. I mean, it's such an interesting scene. Um, and one of and it, yeah, and it has the Elliot Smith song playing over it, which is kind of like uh, really eerie, super eerie because um, Elliot Smith, I believe, killed himself. Is that the needle in the hay song? Yeah. No, uh, that's the song that's playing while he's committing suicide. Mm-hmm. And, and Elliot Smith killed himself two years after this movie came out. Wow. That's... Yeah. Is that true? <laughs> I I don't want to yeah. take a deep dive in the internet right now, but that's... No, it totally is. It's true. I mean, he did kill himself in 2003. Wow. That's... I'm yeah. trying not to let there be dead air here, but that's kind of a remarkable... I mean, to... Yeah. It's write a, such a, a song thing. and with such power in it, you know. I and it becomes really poignant when you watch it, that scene in this movie. It's like, oh god! Jeez. Like at first, I was like, I can't believe he played an Elliot Smith song during this because Elliot Smith killed himself. And I was like, oh shit, this before. happened before Elliot Smith killed himself. That's crazy. Ooh. That is so. Yeah. What's pretty? Wes Anderson. He's. <laughs> I I really I just and that's I think this is the scene that w- before we started you know I talked about the the emotional difficulty with which Wes Anderson movies can come and yeah I think this is honestly the scene that when I say that this is what I'm talking and it's so powerful that a lot of his movies can feel even though the Grand Budapest has sad moments but it's overall not a sad story. Right. Same with Rushmore. Same with Life Aquatic. But I feel like Darjeeling. We'll take a look at Darjeeling. Yeah. Even Darjeeling though ends with them at least yeah. being. Well, I guess even Royal Tenenbaums still has a happy ending. It's just this particular yeah. scene I think has such a wake to it that mm-hmm. it's easy to when you talk about Wes Anderson. This is kind of a has a gravity that kind of pulls everything in maybe a little bit further than it actually is. You know, mm-hmm. when we get to the end, most yeah. of what we're talking about is comedy, but I guarantee that this scene will be, let's talk about the dark moments of Wes Anderson. And this is the peak. Yeah. So, and it's really poignant. I mean, I love, it's such an interesting story. I mean, we talked about last week about Rushmore being almost like an Oedipus story, mm-hmm where uh, Max is trying to fulfill the love that he didn't have from his mother, and he's trying to do that romantically with the teacher. But when he actually gets confronted with the idea of romantic love with her, he kind of recoils at it because he understands that he isn't emotionally mature enough to accept Mm -hmm. it. And I feel like that same sentiment is echoed in this, in that you know Richie is in love with his sister, And, yeah, technically they're not related, but they did grow up together as brother and sister their entire lives. Yeah. So, you know, that the technicality is kind of lost because that incestuous relationship is still pretty resonant, even though technically they're, you know, not genetically 
you know, similar. Yeah. And we do get Gene so, Hackman addressing that on the rooftop. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's not illegal, but it's still frowned upon. That's basically a, a great way <laughs> to put it. Like, people would be a little weirded out, yeah. right? Um, and it's interesting because they make that kind of pact that, uh, that you know, maybe we'll just have to love each other from afar, mm-hmm. and that's all it can ever be. But then they have that moment on the roof together, and... The interesting thing about this, too, is that once things come to light about Margot, she starts to accept them. So, like, once it comes to light that she smokes, she just starts smoking in front of everybody. She doesn't mm-hmm. care. Um, And she's been in some culturally taboo relationships before, I'm sure. So, you know, just give her, open another swinging door if, if you're if you're willing. Well, and her mom, Ethelene, Angelica Houston, nails it with the line when she is watching Margot finally smoke in the open. She goes, you should stop smoking. She doesn't address the fact that she has <laughs> smoked for 22 years. Right. Doesn't matter. Right. Moving forward, you probably shouldn't smoke. And that's a really beautiful, that's good parenting in a lot of ways yeah. because harping on it doesn't, doesn't get you anywhere. All you get is you create sort of negative feelings with the person that you're trying to help. But yeah, by drudging it up, there's nothing instructive in that, at least in this instance. So, um, really great, simple emotional relationships. That, yeah, you know, well, they keep it simple, but it's also pretty goddamn complex. You know, they keep the storytelling simple, but the themes themselves are very complex. Yeah, and then so, the actors just crush the rest of the way. I they yeah. just, I don't think that this movie yeah. could carry without. A cast this this highbrow. I do feel like uh, Owen Wilson's drug use was a little like out of the blue. Well, it felt like they were filming Owen Wilson in his house without touching anything, right? <laughs> but they. But what I'm saying is that the, you know he, they walk in on him doing cocaine, uh, and then they're like, "You need help." And there's no subtext before that. At least I didn't pick up on anything that's like, "Yeah, this guy's a drug addict." Yeah. So. That was a little strange. I wonder if there was some. I the nice thing is that that these out. movies are you know a moderate time frame, and I wonder if there right. was some some pretext that yes. was cut out, maybe sliced. Yeah, I mean they're sub two hours, which is great. Um, yeah, uh, and then I just want to do a caveat here: Elliot Smith widely accepted to be a suicide, but it is controversial, very much like Kurt Cobain. Really? So huh. yes. So I don't want to. Don't want to ruffle any internet <laughs> feathers. Uh, but anyway, speaking of ruffling internet feathers, if we ruffled your internet feathers, listener, send us an email, directpodcast at gmail.com, or go to the forums, forums.baldmove.com. There'll be a thread there for next week's episode, which will be about The Life Aquatic, which is a great movie, and I'm excited to watch it again. Oh, yeah. uh, but until next week, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut.